Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. And we're into extra time. No, my fakarongo Mikey extra time. Koravinda Hunia Aho. This week, we preview the All Blacks' much anticipated match against England this weekend gender equality why men want to be included on netball's world stage. We look ahead to the women's first ever standalone T20 Cricket World Cup and cricket great Sir Richard Hadley's made his first appearance since cancer surgery and renewed calls for tougher rules for charity boxing events after a Christchurch man lost his life in hospital this week. World Rugby's most anticipated match of 2018 takes place at Twickenham this weekend, with England playing the All Blacks for the first time in four years. Coach Steve Hansen describes the test as the biggest game since the last World Cup, and he's thrust a rookie centre into the cauldron to see if he sinks or swims. Rugby reporter Joe Porter has more. Aaron Smith again, quick hands for Reid. Oh, the set! It's going to be a try at the other end! A famous and deserved victory for England at Twickenham. England pulled off one of the greatest victories in their history as they ended the All Blacks' 20-match unbeaten run in 2012 at Twickenham. The New Zealanders would reverse that result in 2014, but since then the world's been starved of any battles between the sides. The All Blacks coach Steve Hansen believes Sunday's match is even bigger than last year's series against the British and Irish Lions. The Lions tour has made it bigger, you know, because we weren't successful. Uh, in, in only drawing the series, you know, that to us wasn't successful. So, you know, there's 80,000 people, it's all over the papers, uh, everyone's talking about it. You can't get a ticket, you'd have to be on holiday, I reckon, if you didn't work out that this is going to be big. More than 80,000 English fans will chant all game and employ a stirring rendition of Swing Low Sweet Chariot to try and drown out the All Blacks haka. England's coach, the inimitable Australian Eddie Jones, couldn't care less if the crowd respects or overpowers the New Zealand challenge. At that stage of the, the game, they could be playing Spice Girls, I wouldn't know what's being played. They're making a comeback, aren't they, Spice Girls? So maybe they could, they could sing at that time. It's got no relevance to me at all, mate. While Jones is indifferent, someone who will respect the hucker is England flanker Brad Shields. The former Hurricanes captain will play against his country of birth for the first time on Sunday. Steve Hansen used to coach Wales and says it was always tough for him when he faced the All Blacks. He imagines Shields will feel the same. For me, it was pretty raw, and um, he's going to be lining up facing the Harker, facing a team that he's always wanted to play for, and now he's got the opportunity to play against them. You know, some of his great mates are in that team, so he'll find it emotional. The All Blacks rookie centre Jack Goodhue will have to control his emotions at Twickenham this weekend, but the 23-year-old, who's played only a handful of tests, says the pressure cooker atmosphere will be water off a duck's back. I haven't played in front of 80,000 people before, but I can't imagine it's too much difference between 50 and 80. I mean, it's just a lot of people, isn't it? I feel a little bit louder. But I'm just going to go through my processes, trying to think about it, you know, and play the game that I've been playing since I'm a little kid, and just yeah, do my thing. 
The midfielder is happy to be doing his thing after being laid low by glandular fever. Goodhue says a little motherly love worked wonders. Anyone who knows a bit about glandular fever um, knows it can last a while. I was getting told some horror stories that could be out for six months or something, so wasn't really sure what to expect, but went up uh, home in uh, Northland and uh, Kawakawa. Mum yeah, got me on the chicken soup and uh, I bounced back pretty quick, so yeah, I'm feeling 100% now and, and ready to play. If he plays well in an All Blacks win on Sunday, Goodhue could well cement himself as the team's first-choice centre. Joe Porter with that report. Gender inequality in sport has been a hot topic this year, prompting the argument of why men aren't allowed to participate in international netball. For 35 years, men have competed in netball and recently the New Zealand men's and mixed netball teams self-funded and participated in the annual Trans-Tasman Cup in Adelaide against Australia, receiving 130,000 live stream viewers. The men's netball community are now calling for the International Netball Federation to reconsider its stance on reserving professional netball for women only. I caught up with some key stakeholders in the debate earlier this week. International netball is strictly for females and is one of the only single-gendered sports to be sanctioned by its international organisation. But it's not due to a lack of male participation nor male interest. And New Zealand men's netball president David Palamo says it's time for a change. Most other sports, they are recognised. In this day and age, it's important that everyone regardless of race, sex or, or whatever, are treated equal. I mean, men are hugely involved in netball at the female level anyway. And it would be nice just to get a little bit of recognition and help when they want it for their own sport. A statement on male participation released by the INF in February this year says the primary focus at international level will remain female-only netball. And INF Chief Executive Claire Bregel says it's a statement they stand by. The challenge we have is that one country can fully accept the diversity in the sport and in other countries the fact that it's women's only provides a very safe place or provides the rationale for the funding that they get from their government. The world is made up of hundreds of countries with different attitudes towards women. Men's netball is played in 16 countries from Africa, Asia, Canada and the Pacific and it's growing. Critical play here for the Kiwis. They've lost their last couple. They need to keep the legs ticking over. Former Australian captain turned commentator and former Adelaide Thunderbirds coach Dan Ryan says limiting the sport to 50% of the world's population continues to restrict the game. Netball really does pride itself on being the number one female sport, the number one participation sport for women, which I think is fantastic. But netball also probably needs to be a little bit more ambitious in being the number one participation sport for people in general. The amount of people that play netball here in Australia, netball can be marketed as a number one choice sport for any household, any community. That's the most important thing for the game. Netball New Zealand CEO Jenny Wiley recognises the INF's view of trying to preserve the woman-driven sport. It serves as an activity women can take full ownership of in playing, coaching and umpiring confidently, a rarity in any sport. There is such a different dynamic going on in a lot of countries. And I guess in New Zealand, you know, we do put women and young girls first. We still continue to see a 15% gap in participation for young women and girls and we truly believe we have a responsibility 
to lead in that space. But that's not to say that we don't respect what the men bring to the game. So having that great relationship with them is really important. Men have served as training partners for the Silver Ferns and domestic franchises and are occasionally given financial support from Netball New Zealand to help with tournament costs and Palamo hopes it's eventually echoed globally. If you look around the world, there's male umpires, there's coaches that are coaching international teams, there are physios, there are managers, timekeepers. They're hugely involved in the women's section of netball. So it would be nice to have that recognition. Then that would help us. If we were recognised, then more people think, oh, we're being taken seriously. Male participation isn't off the table and will be discussed again when the INF holds its Congress before next year's Netball World Cup in Liverpool. The concern is losing its underlying principle. We are the custodians of the netball game, but the the impact that that participation has on the lives of those women and girls, the confidence it gives them, the impact of having a sport where the role models are women is big, it's very motivating. While the chances of change looks unlikely for now, men's netball marches on with selection now underway to compete against Australia in Melbourne next April. The Women's T20 Cricket World Cup takes a significant step with the event, which starts tomorrow, now a standalone tournament. The previous five tournaments have all been held in conjunction with the men's tournament, but the ICC felt that the growth in the women's game warranted a change. Ten teams will compete in the West Indies over the next two weeks, with the home side defending the title that they won two years ago. Barry Guy reports. Could be a run out, should be a run out, not a run out and the winning runs and the West Indies for the first time in their history. The West Indies winning the final in 2016, a significant result that showed it wasn't just Australia and England that ruled the game. As many as five teams, Australia, England, New Zealand, the West Indies and India have a chance at this tournament which will make the world body happy. White Ferns batter Maddie Green says while they're getting good support from the governing body, it's now up to the players to promote it to a wider audience. Hopefully we see some really good scores and some great pieces of athleticism and great bowling and, and make it a really entertaining showpiece for people to watch and you know, hopefully we get young girls to play cricket and get more people watching the game. New Zealand are contenders, however their form going into this tournament hasn't been great. The White Ferns were beaten by Australia 3-0 in a recent series, while they didn't manage to beat England in three T20s and two ODIs in June and July. The Caribbean conditions are a lot different to New Zealand, and captain Amy Satterthwaite believes that could lead to some of their less well-known players coming to the fore. I'm excited to see how the likes of Amelia Kerr and Lee Kasperick bowl in these conditions. I think you'd like to think that they would suit them. But someone like Katie Martin is probably someone that we don't hear too much about, but I think she's started to show some really key performances for us in the last sort of 12, 12 months, and I think she could be really vital for us. Australia are again favourites. While they're currently without a major title, the three-time T20 champions appear to have regained the Midas touch, winning 19 of 24 matches across all formats in the past 12 months. Coach Matthew Mott says Australia are hungry to make amends for two years of frustration. There's almost a sense of unfinished business over the last couple of years and we've played some really good cricket, particularly in the last eight to ten months. But you know, we're very hungry to, to get a, a world crown back and I think this group's at a place now where they're, they're really ready to, to show the world how well they're playing and it's, it's important it all you know, comes together over the next couple of weeks. 
New Zealand have finished runners-up twice in the T20 World Cup and will need all aspects of their game working well to have a chance this time. A lot will be expected of their experienced openers Susie Bates and Sophie Devine. The pair, along with captain Sathith Waite, played in the 2010 final in Bridgetown when they lost to Australia. Devine says they might have to temper their approach with the bat. We both know that if we give, each, give ourselves time, that we're probably going to be better later on. So for us, yeah, especially over here it is, it's about adapting and, and knowing you know, when to go. But in saying that, though, it's probably the easiest time to have a crack when the ball's new and hard and, and the field is up. So for us, it's that balance between making sure we give ourselves a chance but also attacking the, the opposition and, and putting them under the pump. Well, that's going to be the game in one mighty blow from Sophie Devine. It's been a brilliant innings, a fitting way to finish it. The White Ferns' first game is against India in Guyana tomorrow. They also play Australia, Pakistan and Ireland in pool play. And that was sports reporter Barry Guy. Sir Richard Hadley has made his first public appearance since undergoing a second round of surgery for cancer. New Zealand's most accomplished cricketer spoke at a function at Hagley Oval in Christchurch last night. How to thank his trust for a large donation towards the refurbishment of an indoor training centre for cricketers next to the Oval, named after him. Conan Young was there for this piece of cricketing history. OBW, and will that be a wicket for Richard Hadley with his last ball in Test cricket? Footage was played last night of the last ball Sir Richard ever bowled in Test cricket against England in 1990, in which he managed to take yet another five-wicket haul. But it was the nine wickets he took against Australia at the Gabba in 1985 that was on everybody's mind, with it being 33 years to the day since he achieved that unbelievable feat, the best Test performance ever in Australia by any player, homegrown or visiting. Incredibly, it was also the first time New Zealand had beaten Australia in Australia. Ever the perfectionist, Sir Richard said it was tough to stop at just nine wickets. If ever there was a perfect time to pick up ten wickets in the innings, uh, I had it in my hands to do so. Particularly when that ball went up in the air when uh, Jeff Lawson swept uh, Vaughan Brown and there I was at mid-on and I had to run round to about mid-wicket and uh, to take that catch. Do I have any regrets about taking that catch? Of course not. Sir Richard underwent surgery for bowel cancer in June. A month later it was announced he would need further surgery for secondary liver cancer, followed by yet more chemotherapy. Last night Sir Richard gave thanks to friends and family gathered to recognise his contribution to the game and formally announced a large donation from his trust, towards refurbishing what will become the Sir Richard Hadley Sports Centre. It's therefore my pleasure to announce the Sir Richard Hadley Sports Trust will gift $800,000 as seed funding for the development and refurbishment of the new sports centre. Because of my long association with cricket, I'm immensely pleased the trustees have supported the recommendation to be part of this development. This is extremely meaningful for me personally. Sir Richard was too tired after the function for media interviews, but those gathered were full of praise for his contribution towards cricket, both as a player and as an administrator, including commentator Brian Model. He was a man who set himself goals, you know. He was misunderstood by a lot of people, but he's a champion, you know, and champions 
work hard at what they do. And it doesn't matter what area, whether you're a pop singer, whether you're a ballet dancer, whatever you do. It doesn't come just like that. You have to work. Brian Waddle knew he was looking at somebody special the first time he saw Sir Richard Bowling. I played against him in a game of cricket when he was 18. And I did my best to avoid facing him because uh, he was quick. One of Sir Richard's teammates in that famous victory over Australia in 1985 was spin bowler Stephen Bock. He played at a time when uh, cricket was still, for most of us, was fun. And um, it wasn't a job, but he was just far more focused than um, I, uh, I remember anyone else being. He was analytical and, um, and he was clever. He had a memory about all the batsmen he bowled to. The contribution of Sir Richard's trust means there's still $2.5 million left to raise to make the indoor training centre a reality. It's hoped construction can begin in April next year. Conan Young with that report. There are renewed calls for tougher rules for charity boxing events after a man critically injured at the weekend died in hospital. Kane Parsons was boxing in the fight for Christchurch. David Craig is an internationally accredited boxing referee and up until two weeks ago was the president of the New Zealand National Boxing Federation. Susie Ferguson asked him if he knew all precautions were in place. I know the referee involved personally very well. He's one of those guys that gets criticised for stopping fight too soon rather than letting them go on. I don't think this was an issue relating around officiating or what necessarily happened in the ring. It's probably the process which leads to these guys and girls who do get in the ring and probably some more, I guess, stricter measures are required before these guys and girls get in there. So they get, what, 12 weeks training. Is that enough time and is that responsible? Very simple answer, no. The rise in the popularity of these charity boxing events and corporate boxing events in the last three to four years has increased dramatically and it's now become one of these things where a bucket list type sort of opportunity and there's a saying that, that we have in the sport and, and you don't play boxing. Mm. And I think that the, the, the sport has become trivialised and you think that, OK, I can do a, um, I can do a 12-week course, I tick the box, I pay the money, I get in the ring and uh, there's my bucket list or there's that, that one thing I've wanted to do in my life, done. Okay, so Um, if it's not 12 weeks, if that's not enough, what should it be? uh, From personal experience, I think you should be doing um, at least a year's worth of training to get into the ring. It's not only a fitness issue, it's a skill issue. And uh, from there, you'll know yourself whether or not you have the ability to get in there and and contest your skills against another fighter. What about wearing headgear? Should that be compulsory for amateurs? Look, that is a really contentious issue. Why? well, look, the, the, the research out there actually shows, the, the credible research actually shows it does nothing to prevent concussive injuries. It's more of a... Is that because people have a thing. kind of false sense of security if they're wearing headgear, that their head's less likely to get injured even if they're being punched in the head? Yeah, absolutely right. There, there are three things which um, have come out of uh, all of the credible research around wearing headgear. One of them is that wearing headgear makes your head a larger target and therefore easier to hit. The second issue is that it does block uh, vision and peripheral vision, those sort of things, which uh, then mean that you can become more likely to be hit. 
And the third is that it does offer a level and a sense of complacency and that you're more willing to accept um, a hit to the head. Okay, so what about gloves, which is another aspect? Either 16-ounce or 18-ounce usually, but these gloves are not all created equal, are they? There's a density issue that can be at play. Yes, the the 16-ounce and 18-ounce measurements refer to the weight of the gloves and they are designed differently. I don't necessarily think that's an issue and in 99.9% of the cases that I've observed and that I've been involved in, 16-ounce and 18-ounce gloves have been used. When I've been involved sanctioning events, we stipulate that they must be new gloves. They can't be gloves that have been uh, kicked around the gym for, for 12, 18, 24 months. I believe the right equipment is being used. It's probably the processes that are lacking prior to these guys getting into the race. There's another charity boxing event taking place this weekend in Auckland. Are fighters safe or should that be called off? That's a tricky one. I I, I don't believe uh, we should have necessarily a knee-jerk reaction to what has happened in in Christchurch. Yes, there have been several other near misses this year, but when we look back over the last three to four or five years, these sort of events have been very, very few and far between. What I think the results have been as as of what's happened in Christchurch is that we will now be a lot more cautious. I do have an issue where you have a gentleman who's probably more desk-bound, being put up against somebody who I understand was a a professional rugby player. That, to me, doesn't sound like a a good match, and I would have had some reservations about that. So those are the sort of questions that, that need to be asked, and I'd like to see, effectively, a warrant of fitness provided to demonstrate that they have undergone sufficient training and are at a level of fitness to allow them to step into the ring. Susie Ferguson there talking to boxing referee David Craig. And that's all we have time for this week. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of our sports stories at radioNZ.co.nz forward slash sport and follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. Koravinda Hunia Tene, hey Kona. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.